Hello, I'm Seth M. Siegel, and welcome to the Let There Be Water podcast, a conversation featuring ideas and solutions to some of the world's most pressing water issues. Our guest today is Mira Subramanian, a writer on culture, faith, and the environment. Mira is the author of A River Runs Again, India's Natural World in Crisis from the Barren Cliffs of Rajasthan to the Farmlands of Karnataka. India famously has both abundant amounts of water and enormous water problems. In this regard, what has happened in India is a warning and a lesson for the world. Mira, welcome to the Let There Be Water podcast. Thanks for having me, Seth. It's a real pleasure. So we met at the Miami Book Fair, and uh, I was talking about Israel and how it solved the problems, and you were talking about India in a more hopeful manner. So tell us a little bit about India's water profile. What's going on there, and what's the cause of the problems? So I went to India looking to see what was working and what wasn't working for them as they confronted some of these really strong natural resource pressures. So water was a big, big part of that. India is a place where natural resources are limited everywhere. And in India, you really have that population pressure that you're feeling in a really intense way that is echoed around the world. In reading your book, I was very struck by the fact that India has many aquifers, but that about a third of them face complete depletion in the very near future. Yeah, the prospects looking forward are slightly terrifying. Um, What's happening in India is that aquifers are being depleted, primarily because of overuse and overextraction for agriculture as well as just human and industrial use. And then you've got this other whole factor of the Himalayan snowmelt. What India is experiencing is a, is a great change in precipitation patterns combined with an increase of, of warming temperatures that is depleting some of those glaciers. And that's setting up a, a really frightening scenario just because of the millions and millions of people that will be affected by the depletion of water, both from the ground as well as from the mountains. And most of the rest of the world, the issues are of quality of water or failing quantity of water, one or the other, but not both necessarily. And India really has both. And it's hard to prioritize one over the other. Yeah, that's an, that's an excellent point about the quantity and the quality are both both so deeply compromised. And then the, on top of that is just these changing precipitation patterns that are really playing out in South Asia like they are around the world. My father is from Chennai, which is the large city in the south that used to be known as Madras. And parts of the city are under seven feet of water because they've been dealing with monsoon rains that nobody has seen in their lifetime. What are they doing vis-a-vis rain capture? I mean, if they're short of surface water, the short of underground water. You mentioned in your book how they're building dams to try to protect the rain when it falls. But what are they doing on a kind of a national basis to secure their future by taking rain capture methodologies? Um, It still seems to be way too small scale, in my opinion. Monsoon season is only about 54 days. So you're talking like in North India, for example, three quarters of their rain comes down in 54 days. And in that 54 days, it's really in the span of about 100 hours. So we're talking about really, really concentrated rainfall. And how do you best utilize that? I think it could be really transformative, not just in India, but everywhere that's dealing with these places that are mostly dry, but then get quick, sudden rainfalls, is to replicate what I was seeing in Rajasthan, where they were building these small dams that really just help the water pause. And that's what's recharging the aquifers. How did the aquifers get into such a miserable state of disrepair and overuse? 
Yeah, that that part was really fascinating to research. There were actually like flush toilets basically in the Indus Valley in northern India and Pakistan. 4,000 years ago, they had running water and indoor toilets. And this is something that, you know, unfortunately, a, a strong association people have with India is just open defecation, just not even having adequate sanitation facilities available to people. So part of my question was like, what what happened? Like, how did, how did this technology exist 4,000 years ago and then get lost? Over the past couple hundred years, the maintenance of those systems really broke down. The whole idea that, you know, with the British Raj coming in, that someone else would take care of it. <laughs> but the reality was that nobody was maintaining it. And there's um, a lesson for us in that as well. Uh, when no one is looking out for our water systems, they deteriorate fairly quickly. Yeah, yeah, they absolutely need maintenance. In your book, you make mention of the fact that the fertilizers also leach into the aquifers and also when the rains come, run into the surface water as well. Yeah. And what's fascinating is that India is a real agrarian society. Half of the population is actually involved in some levels on agriculture. And agriculture, as you know, is one of the big pressures that are on water worldwide. So around 80% of water is being used towards agriculture. And in India, that, that plays out in a real serious way. Conservation was just not part of the equation. In the 50s and 60s, the goal then was to get high yields and feed people. And amazingly, they did that. But in the process, tube wells that might have been in 1960 might have been 40 feet deep are now 400 feet deep. And I was hearing this from farmers in multiple regions that the wells have extracted so much water that they go deeper and deeper down into the earth, where naturally occurring carcinogens just naturally there in the stone. But then you've also got nitrogens and all the fertilizers and pesticides draining into the aquifers from the use of chemical agriculture. So even only uh, growing food in a way that pollutes the aquifer, you're also depleting it and sending yourself into more of a danger zone in terms of the, the water that's there naturally. One actually exciting thing in Indian water is that in the last few years, India has grown to be the largest global market for drip irrigation equipment. Now, obviously, it's a very large country. It's got a lot of people, 1.2, 1.3 billion people. Mm -hmm. And the estimates are between half and as many as two-thirds of the population involved in agriculture in one way or another. So it would make sense that it's a leading market for any agricultural equipment. But do you see drip irrigation playing a special role in the future of Indian agriculture? I think it could be transformative if it was implemented on a wide scale. I think that is a, a big loss. With all of these issues around sustainability, it always seems like there's just kind of the forgotten orphan of conservation. You know, you just don't need as much water if you're using it efficiently. And you're absolutely right. The drip irrigation is transformative in terms of agriculture and how much water you need to sustain that system. I think of myself as a missionary for drip irrigation, because for India, which also suffers from terrible pollution problems and also from terrible problems of food insecurity, drip irrigation not only saves 50 to 60% of the water on flood irrigation, it also produces far larger yields. And in terms of the pollution from fertilizer, it minimizes it because the fertilizer is added in liquid form to the water. So it'd be a great solution for India's problems. Yeah, it's really just targeting that water to get it exactly where you need it instead of just, you know, dousing fields with flood irrigation and that kind of technology. It's so simple and straightforward, and yet disseminating it seems like it's going to need some good help from the cooperative extensions and the government to help really get that put into the landscape on a broad scale. Now, the open field defecation problem, if I'm not mistaken, has a second order magnitude problem, which is that it has the potential to severely pollute the aquifers. I mean, we have hundreds of millions of people without use of toilets or latrines or septic systems. And so therefore, they just do what they have to do in the open field. And as time goes by, that waste leaches into water supplies. Is that commonly a problem as well in India? 
It is. It is a problem. It's a pretty grave problem. I mean, the the combination of that human waste combined with just industrial effluent and even kind of interestingly, even religious, you know, there, there are so many sacrifices made to rivers that are considered so holy within the Hindu tradition. But that is all basically putting all these materials into the water that actually pollutes. So that combination um, has been really pretty lethal. There are long stretches of major rivers in India that are considered dead, where really no life can survive because there's been just such an onslaught of pollution of all forms. The most famous body of water in India is probably the Ganges River. Mm. And there have been a lot of reports over the past few years that the current government is determined to fix it and clean it of its pollution. Uh, it seems almost like an insurmountable task, but I'd love to hear your opinion of what we can do, what they can do, what the world can do to help create one of the great bodies of water and clean it. Yeah, I, I have. I've heard a lot about Prime Minister Modi. He seems de very dedicated to, to cleaning up the river. Uh, it is going to be a monumental task. There's a lot of industry around the river. Uh, there's a lot of religious offerings that are made directly into the river, human bodies and the ashes from, from that um, just being one part of that equation. Uh, part of my book also talks about vultures being gone and their cleanup role is no longer there. There's been a catastrophic decline of South Asian vultures because of a pharmaceutical drug. So that cleanup mechanism has vanished. So I haven't read in detail what Modi is proposing to do to clean up the Ganges, but it is a monumental task. I mean, I think that if he is applying methods to really reduce the amount of both industrial effluent as well as human sewage input into the river. I am all in support of that, and I hope he can replicate that on every body of water in India. Question is, is when does the public get outraged? What is the reaction of people in India to the fact that there's been without regulation and the fact that now the water is getting to the point where it's getting to be toxic? I went looking at the farmers who were highly frustrated and said that they'd had enough and they were getting off of chemical agriculture that had been introduced through the Green Revolution in the 60s. And they were moving towards something more akin to what their grandfathers did and also combining some of the newer things we know about how to grow food in a sustainable manner. And so there was definite outrage within small portions of the population. But I think so much of India is struggling with the basic needs. You still have more than half of the population that doesn't have access to clean water. So the question then is, how do you how do you have developmental economics that helps get people out of this kind of deep poverty and at the same time not end up running out of water? Sometimes I think of India as a race against time, which gives out first. Yeah, yeah, I think it is a race against time. I, th I think it is facing what we're all going to be facing if we're not arguably facing it right now, but it really just kind of makes it so apparent uh, the direction that we're heading on the planet. Let's talk a little bit about the role of price, which has been a political issue everywhere in the world and obviously more so in India. A friend of mine recently came back from a trip to India, a water guy, and he told me that he was shocked to see that in Delhi, you could buy about 200 gallons of water for about six cents, but the problem is it's not available. So therefore, people have to rely upon water trucks where they pay about $7 for the same volume of water. And obviously, the lesson from that is that with pricing set properly, India could solve a lot of its problems. You could have people conserving water when they need to, and also people making use of water when they have to. Right, right. And it would also, I mean, there's actually a, a huge black market involved with water as well, that a lot of times those water trucks are getting their water from sources that are 
either straight out illegal or just unsafe. So there's that whole regulation quality issue that plays into that pricing structure as well. Now that I'm thinking about the tricky thing with raising the price of water to get it more consistently available to the population is just that there are so many people who just can't afford it. I think that's the the really tricky part is just dealing with that half to three quarters of the population that are living in pretty serious poverty. So why don't you help us to understand how you think India might be a lesson or a warning for the world? Yeah. I mean, like like you said, it's 1.3 billion people. I mean, when I started working on this book, it was 1.2. And as I was spending time traveling around the US this fall talking about it, I realized, oh, I need to stop saying that. We're, we're at 1.28. We're, we're really 0.3. And, and just also in the past few months, the UN released new numbers that India is actually expected to outpace China as the most populous nation by 2022. So that's seven years from now, that India will be the most populous nation. So what they're facing and how they're facing it seems like it's going to just have really strong lessons, both what's working and what's not working. I mean, look, figuring out what's not working is just as valuable as, as finding these examples of models that might be useful and applicable in other places. Mira, so where does all this go for India? Do we see a day where there's a continental-sized migration of hundreds of millions of people going from where there isn't water to where they're seeking there might be water? Are we facing a monumental humanitarian crisis, or do they get their act together and fix this? It could go either way, Seth. It could really go either way. I mean, I'm, a, I'm pretty troubled by Prime Minister Modi's direction just since he's been elected in the past year and a half of really moving towards mega development projects, pushing forward on uh, large dams, as opposed to looking at some of these smaller scale efforts that would be much more sustainable for the long term. India is already facing, in terms of the migration issue, they've already been facing that for decades. I mean, the place that I went in Rajasthan, all the men had left 40 years ago because the water had dried up and there was no hope for agriculture or livestock to, to happen there successfully. I mean, so they'd left. So that migration is already happening within India all the time, as well as people deciding to leave. And there's a whole cohort of Indian laborers that are working in the Middle East and working construction sites there that are part of the reasons they leave sometimes is because their homelands have dried up. So I feel like that is already happening. I feel like also that uh, the stories that I saw in, in Rajasthan where these small-scale efforts were happening and people were really taking, like really taking ownership of their landscapes. You know, I sat with uh, Kanahia Lal Gujar is one of the fellows that I that I spent a lot of time with in Rajasthan. And he's like, you know, we're not, this isn't rocket science. Like we used to just have scientists come here and, you know, we would just defer to everything they said, but now we're doing this. And we've brought together different people from different castes in our own village to work together on this project that helps all of us. And there's this huge amount of power and autonomy that comes from those efforts. And that's what gives me hope that that energy is there in India and that it could be replicated throughout India as well as anywhere else. Let's really hope so. It's a real crisis of almost unimaginable proportions if this isn't gotten right. Mm -hmm. It's true. It's true. It's a quarter. It's a quarter of humanity. Well, Mira, do you have anything else you'd like to say? I would say let there be water. Yes, let there be water. Thank you so much. Our guest today has been Mira Subramanian, and it has been a delight speaking with you. I hope you come back again when you come back from one of your trips to India. Great. Thanks for having me, Seth. This edition of the Let There Be Water podcast was directed by Jamie Black and edited by Morel Frankel, with production assistance by Alexander Lindroth and creative input from Krasimir Galabov. Thank you for listening. <laughs>